Hello, it's Adam from the Tudor Chest here. In addition to my weekly main podcast episode, I release a weekly bonus episode in which I dive deeper into some of the aspects of our past that I don't have time to cover in the main show. From Anne Boleyn's portraiture to the true story behind Mary Queen of Scots' execution, these episodes can all be accessed either via my Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash the Tudor Chest or via Apple Podcast subscriptions. Subscribers also get ad-free episodes, plus group chats, live Q&As, and much more. Easily one of the most prominent families from Tudor England were the Poles. The Poles belonged to the old guard of the English nobility. In fact, they were more than mere nobility, they were arguably royal. The family matriarch was Margaret Pole, Countess of Salisbury, a niece of two of England's kings, Edward IV and Richard III. And yet relatively late into the reign of King Henry VIII, the elderly countess, aged 67, old by the standards of the time, would suffer one of the most infamously botched executions at the Tower of London. 18 months earlier, her eldest son and heir had also had an appointment with the block. Her youngest son was imprisoned, having been instrumental in the downfall of his own family, and her second youngest son, Reginald Pole, was safely ensconced under the protection of the Pope. All that remained of the great Pole family was the Countess of Salisbury's daughter, Ursula. Ursula has flown under the radar ever since. Seldom explored or discussed at any great length, she was nonetheless one of the most fascinating figures from the time, and it was also in Ursula that the descendants would be born who arguably provided the greatest opportunity to exonerate the once great name of the Pole family. Welcome back to the Tudor Chess Podcast, episode 14, Ursula Pole, Baroness Stafford, the Forgotten Plantagenet Daughter. On the 22nd of August 1485, the expected future of England was irrevocably changed. At the Battle of Bosworth Field, King Richard III, the last Plantagenet king, was killed, ending the 331-year-long rule of the House of Plantagenet. The army facing Richards was led by an obscure Welshman, Henry Tudor, who although boasting the title of Earl of Richmond, was, by and large, a political non-entity. Even so, he was the last hope of the beleaguered Lancastrian branch of the Plantagenet family which tells you something about how dire the position of the Lancastrians was at this time. Henry's ancestry may have had King Edward III in its ranks, but he was born to an illegitimate line, and frankly speaking, had little tangible right to the throne. Directly preceding his shock win at Bosworth, the crown had been held by the Yorkist branch of the Plantagenets, although they themselves had acquired it through waging war roughly 25 years earlier. When Henry VII became king, it would spark a monumental shift in the political powers within the English royal court, and naturally place suspicion on anyone who remained who shared a close blood bond to the fallen king. Now unfortunately for the Tudors, this was practically the whole nobility. The high nobility in particular was a relatively small group of families who were all tied together either through blood or marriage, often both. Among this group, some of the most prominent and easily the grandest in terms of close blood ties to Richard III were the descendants of his two older brothers, King Edward IV 
and George, Duke of Clarence. The Duke of Clarence had been a constant thorn in the side of his eldest York brother, Edward IV, who eventually authorised his own brother's execution, famously by being drowned in a barrel of Malmsey wine. His children, Lady Margaret and Edward, Earl of Warwick, were, however, honourably treated, for they were the niece and nephew to the king, and would, everyone expected, play prominent roles in the future prosperity of England. This hope was soon dashed, for following Edward IV's untimely death and the brevity of Richard III's own reign, lasting just two years, the Tudors took over, and immediately anyone of strong Yorkist blood posed a threat. Following the mysterious disappearance of Edward IV's sons in the Tower of London during King Richard III's reign, and the premature death of Richard III's only child, also a son, just one further boy from the male line of the Yorks remained, Edward, Earl of Warwick, the aforementioned son of the Duke of Clarence. Edward and his sister, Margaret, and their five female cousins, the daughters of Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville, were thus the most pure-blooded living remnants of the York dynasty left in England, although there were countless other Yorkists floating about, albeit from more junior branches. Henry VII's own right to the throne was, at very best, tenuous. He was a great-great-grandson of John of Gaunt, which gave him some royal blood, but it was both via an illegitimate relationship and it passed through the female line, a technicality which made his bloodline just less desirable, basically. Moreover, although Henry VII's ancestors, the Beauforts, were eventually legitimised by King Richard II, at the same time it was made clear that they could not inherit the throne. Henry VII's marriage to Princess Elizabeth of York, the most senior remaining Yorkist, was therefore imperative in securing both his position and gaining the widest support of both the nobility and the common people. Henry VII and his domineering mother, Margaret Beaufort, would further solidify the rule of the Tudors by marrying off the rest of the York princesses to trusted Tudor loyalists, but they went a step further with regard to Edward of Warwick, for he was promptly imprisoned in the Tower of London, despite being a boy of just ten. Sadly, he would never leave its walls. Margaret of Clarence's husband was Sir Richard Pole, a minor member of the gentry who was a half-cousin to Henry VII. Margaret was 14, her husband-to-be was 28. Margaret's marriage at 14 was not uncommon in Tudor England, particularly for the nobility, but it was still deemed young for childbirth. It is unsurprising, therefore, that Margaret and Richard did not begin having children straight away, but waited until Margaret was older with their firstborn, Henry, arriving in 1492, when Margaret would have been aged approximately 19. A year or two later, a second son, Arthur, followed. Margaret naming her two sons, Henry and Arthur, must surely have been to honour the new king and his firstborn son, Prince Arthur. When Prince Arthur was formally installed as Prince of Wales, his household was at Ludlow Castle, and Richard Pole was appointed as his Lord Chamberlain. This elevation to what was in effect the Prince's chief advisor came with great prestige, and as such, Margaret Pole was required to retire from her duties to her cousin, Queen Elizabeth, and instead join her husband in helping to govern Prince Arthur's own mini-court of his own. Margaret and Richard were granted the rights to Stoughton Castle in Staffordshire, which was located close to the Prince's central base at Ludlow. It was likely in the mid-1490s that Margaret gave birth to her third child, this time a daughter, Ursula. We can only guess at when she was born, for sadly no exact date of birth was recorded. 
This was not uncommon even for the nobility. It was also at Stoughton that Margaret gave birth to her fourth child and her third son, Reginald, in 1500. Lady Margaret Pole, as she was now formally known, had settled into her life as the wife of a prominent member of the king's inner circle. It gave her security and it gave her position, but not nearly as grand position as would have been expected when she was first born and being brought up. To put it into perspective, Margaret's husband's incomes from the couple of properties that he was given amounted to about £50 a year, which by modern standards is roughly £33,000. Margaret's father's income was around £6,000 a year, or £4.5 million today. So the expectation that Margaret had growing up, the, the riches that she had growing up, did not uh, were not reflected in the marriage that she was given. One thing that Richard Pole did at least do was provide safety, and Margaret returned this with an ample brood of children, including a fifth child and a fourth son, Geoffrey. Disaster struck sadly, however, in 1504 when Richard suddenly died, just a few months after the birth of Geoffrey Pole. From being one of the most important women in the country, Margaret now found herself on the fringes of the court, with little money and a large household to maintain. As a widow, she did not inherit much from her husband's already minimal estates, and would eventually have to resort to taking sanctuary in a house of religion. This was commonplace among noble widows. Indeed, Margaret's aunt, the Queen Dowager Elizabeth Woodville, spent her final years at Bermondsey Abbey. Contrary to the depictions of Margaret Beaufort as being cold and, and difficult, made more acute through the work of Philippa Gregory, she actually looked out for Margaret Pole and her children, as evidenced through her household accounts, with regular payments to support Margaret Pole being recorded. The earliest record of this comes from May 1505, seven months after Sir Richard Pole's death when it is recorded, items delivered unto Dame Margaret Pole. Later, costs and exhibitions of Mistress Ursula Pole were also included. During Margaret's time at Ludlow with her husband, she had become close to Prince Arthur's wife, the Spanish princess Catherine of Aragon, despite the fact that Margaret's brother, the Earl of Warwick, was put to death on the orders of Henry VII when it became clear from the Spanish court that they would not agree to sending Catherine over to England until the most potent threats to the throne were dealt with. Despite what was likely an inauspicious start, therefore, Margaret Pole and Catherine of Aragon actually became great friends, a friendship that would last for the duration of their lives. It was also, therefore, all but guaranteed that Margaret and her children would play a role at the royal court when Henry VIII ascended to the throne, for he had promised to marry Catherine, his late brother's widow, when the time came. Following the death of Henry VII in 1509, the new king, Henry VIII, kept his word and married Catherine not long after. Margaret Pole returned to the court and was given a place of honour in the Queen's household. Shortly after, possibly with the encouragement of Queen Catherine, Margaret approached the king and requested the return of her lands and titles, which had fallen into the crown's hands following her brother's attainder. Now, Henry VIII, unlike his father, boasted 50% Yorkist blood, and appears, at this stage at least in his reign, to have been cut much more from the Yorkist mould. He was gregarious, he was fun and affable, boasting the quintessential Yorkist good looks. In fact, many commented that he was his grandfather, Edward IV, born again, looking a lot like him and being of the same stature, six foot three in height, broad, and at this time, very muscular. 
The king's affinity for his Yorkist cousins was clear, for he agreed to Margaret's requests gladly, making her the Countess of Salisbury in her own right, and easily one of the richest landowners in England, unquestionably the richest woman in England, and thus Margaret's children's fortunes were also literally transformed overnight. This was felt almost at once, for Ursula began to benefit from close association to the king, and was also officially recognised as a member of his family. The household accounts include a warrant to the great wardrobe for a gown of tawny velvet to the king's cousin, Ursula Pole. Margaret's older sons, Henry and Arthur, were welcomed to court and became popular courtiers. Arthur in particular impressed the king with his prowess in the jousting arena. Because of this, both the brothers joined Henry VIII at the ostentatious Field of the Cloth of Gold in 1520, as did their sister Ursula, who was by this stage pregnant with her first child. Margaret Pole's return to riches and influence enabled her to begin marriage negotiations for her four marriageable children. Her third son, Reginald, would be the family exception, for during Margaret's struggles after her husband's death, Reginald was given over to the church to lessen the strain on his mother's already strained finances. The most important marriage for Margaret to get right was that of her heir, Henry, who following his mother's titles being reinstated, became Baron Montague. However, the other major marriage that Margaret would negotiate was her daughter's, Ursula's. Margaret had been blessed with four sons, the stuff of dreams for the king, but sons were not necessarily as valuable on the marriage market as daughters, for although Tudor England was undoubtedly patriarchal, daughters of the nobility were often married up. That is to say that they married into a family of greater influence or prestige than their own, and this was absolutely to be the case with Ursula, for her mother managed to snag one of the great catches from the Tudor nobility, Henry Stafford, the only son of Edward Stafford, 3rd Duke of Buckingham. The Duke of Buckingham was unquestionably the most senior noble in England, effectively second only to the king. There were only a small number of non-royal dukes in England at this time. It was still a relatively new and rare title, but the Dukedom of Buckingham was the grandest. This marriage would, all being well, see Ursula become Duchess of Buckingham in time, and when that time came, she would therefore outrank her entire family. Like Margaret Pole, Edward Stafford was also of strong Plantagenet blood, twice over in fact, being the son of Catherine Woodville, a sister of Queen Elizabeth Woodville, and also a direct descendant in the legitimate, albeit female line, from King Edward III. Buckingham was therefore a member of the old and well-established high nobility. Now, this engendered a man of supreme pride and more than a little arrogance. He was known to openly boast of his ancestry and he loathed low-born upstarts such as Cardinal Thomas Wolsey. The choice to marry his heir into the Pole family was thus entirely suitable and strengthened ties between two of the country's premier houses. The king clearly held no reservations about allowing two of the country's great noble houses to come together in marriage, for he would have had to have assented to the union, which he gave willingly. At the time of the marriage, Ursula was around the age of 15, and her husband was 17. She came with a decent dowry worth over a million pounds by modern standards, and was given some of Margaret Pole's properties in the southwest of England as a means of setting the couple up for the future. Unlike the Tudors, who were famously unlucky when it came to childbearing, the Plantagenets were prolific in giving birth. In fact, they were known as the Demon's Brood for their strong fecundity. This clearly extended to Ursula and Henry Stafford, for during their marriage, 
Ursula would give birth a staggering 14 times, seven boys and seven girls. That Ursula herself survived all of the births was also rare, for childbed complications were commonplace at the time. Her grandmother, the Duchess of Clarence, had died following the short-lived birth of her third child, and Henry VIII would famously lose Jane Seymour a fortnight after her one and only pregnancy. Something else that Ursula gained from her marriage was an important title. In the early years of her marriage, she became known as the Countess of Stafford, for her husband took on the secondary courtesy title of Earl of Stafford from his father. An earldom is the third most senior title in the English peerage, with the dukedom being the grandest of all, followed by a marquisate. Sadly, Ursula would not have the use of her Countess title for very long. In April 1521, the Duke of Buckingham was arrested on a charge of high treason. Although Edward Stafford was known for his pompous manner and eagerness for those around him to accord him every respect as a duke from royal stock, whether he was actually ever truly guilty of the accusations against him is difficult to pin down. According to the evidence brought forward, the origins of his downfall lay in, laid in the failure between Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon in producing healthy sons. It was said that once it became clear that the King and Queen's union would not provide a healthy male heir, talk sprang up as to who would be the natural Tudor successor. And according to Buckingham's servants, the Duke considered himself to be the natural choice. Buckingham's disgrace was immediately problematic for the whole Pole family. The family heir, Henry, found himself imprisoned alongside his father-in-law, George Baron Bergaveni, on a charge of misprision for supposedly not revealing the Duke's treasonous talk. A close friendship between Henry Baron Montague and the Duke is clear from the accounts, which show that they regularly dined together and would often gamble. In fact, on one occasion, the Duke was forced to pay Henry Pole the costly sum of £65, roughly £35,000 by modern standards, for losses in a card game. Arthur Pole had also had a brush with the law when he found himself ejected from court for asking a friend to try and intercede for the Duke. And Margaret Pole, who had been a governess to the King's daughter, Princess Mary, was dismissed from her service. The negative effect was, of course, the greatest for Ursula for her own glittering future, now appeared to be in tatters. With the Duke's attainder, all of his lands and many, many titles reverted to the crown, which robbed Ursula and her husband of their income and livelihood. This must have been an almighty shock for Ursula to grapple with. She was the daughter of a royal countess and the daughter-in-law of a duke, and had become used to having the best of everything. Her wardrobe accounts feature an extensive number of costly items, including damask and ermine fur, the latter of which was almost exclusively restricted to the very top of the nobility. For the time being, however, all of that would have to go. She would have to go back to living a much simpler life and hope and pray for better times. Her mother would, of course, be able to help them out, both financially but also for moral support, for had Margaret not found herself practically penniless and managed to win it all back. This was proven to be the case, for only a year after the Duke's execution, Ursula and her husband were given a smattering of lands in Stafford, Chester and Shropshire, lands that had been revoked in the late Duke's attainder. Whilst the return of these lands and houses was obviously very welcome and enabled the Staffords to live a comfortable existence at the start, their ever-expanding nursery of children soon ensured that they outgrew their means. The family's outgoings simply could not marry up with their incomings. 
This was not uncommon, the nobility often lived well beyond their means, but for the Staffords it was becoming increasingly dire. By 1529, Ursula's husband began further petitions for the restoration of lands seized by the crown in the wake of his father's downfall. He wrote in exasperation to the king, saying he was unable to provide for his family and needed help. Wolsey took the matter out of the king's hands, but was clearly frustrated by what he saw as an ungrateful and grasping nobleman. At this stage, Henry Stafford and his wife, Ursula, had been granted 500 marks of land to live on, but the complaint put forward by Henry Stafford was that they were undervalued. Wolsey disagreed, and basically told the couple to accept the lands as they were, and in the meantime he would try and get further grants of land from the king. When Stafford continued to push the matter, however, Wolsey grew frustrated, and basically threatened him by saying he should either be content with the lands or have none at all, but gain the king's high displeasure. Now, Wolsey was usually a man of composure, which suggests that this heavy-handed rebuttal came from sheer exasperation at the apparent ingratitude of the Staffords. The Pole family, like the other White Rose houses, were both religiously conservative and committed to Henry VIII's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and by extension were therefore very loyal to the interests of Princess Mary. As such, they were greatly against the king's decision to part from Catherine and marry Anne Boleyn. Although ostensibly loyal, for Henry Pole, Baron Montague was part of the group that Henry VIII gathered together to help him achieve a separation from Catherine, the family's true feelings were very tied to Catherine's interests, and they also wanted to maintain a strict adherence to the Catholic faith and the Pope in Rome. Reginald Pole, who had been living in Italy for much of his adulthood, was another member of the family that the king turned to in hoping to secure the annulment that he so desperately craved. Reginald initially suggested that he would conform to the king's wishes, but that was until the separation from the Catholic Church and the papacy. Henry VIII famously achieved his marriage to Anne Boleyn by simply deciding that his marriage to Catherine of Aragon had never been valid, and yet, just three years later, Anne Boleyn will be dead on the executioner's scaffold. The Pole family had perhaps hoped that with the death of the Great Whore, as many called her, that the king would return to reason and sense. This was not to be. He remained dogmatic in his attempt to solidify the Church of England, and shortly thereafter, Reginald finally submitted his findings to the king. Now, rather than receiving glowing praise, Reginald delivered a stinging rebuke of everything that the king had done, calling him a beast and a Nero, the murderer of the greatest men in his kingdom, and so on. The Pole family had undergone a volatile relationship with the king after the Duke of Buckingham's death, only to get back some of that trust. But this attack by Reginald sent the relations between Henry VIII and the Pole family back 30 years. Only Baron Montague, Henry the heir to the Pole name, was unequivocally welcome at court. For Margaret, although not outwardly barred by not having a formal role, in effect had no role to play at court, Geoffrey Pole had been denied access for poor behaviour, and Reginald was public enemy number one as far as Henry VIII was concerned. Ursula Pole's whereabouts at this time are difficult to pin down. She does not come up in any of the sources, which suggests that she remained out of sight, living a quiet, scandal-free life in the country. She was, after all, not a senior member of the nobility any longer. The loss of what would have been her husband's dukedom robbed the couple of senior court rank, and so her presence at the royal court was not needed. She was also, as I referenced earlier, almost perpetually pregnant. Her firstborn, Henry, died in infancy. The couple's next child, Dorothy, came along in 1526 to be followed up by another son who they also called Henry. 
And now I know that sounds a bit weird, but it was actually quite commonplace at the time, for there were far fewer names in use, and infant mortality was something that nearly all families expected to experience. During the reign of Anne Boleyn, Ursula gave birth to two more sons, Thomas, who came along in 1533, and Edward in 1535. Although we do not know where Thomas was born, Edward was recorded as being born at Stafford Castle, which tells us that this is where Ursula and her husband spent much of their time. Ursula would give her husband three more sons in a row, Richard, Walter and William. Unfortunately, we have little to no information to pinpoint where they were born, save an estimated year of birth for Walter of 1539, which would place Richard's birth between 1536 and 1538. The couple would then go on to have four daughters, Elizabeth, Anne, Susan and Jane. Ursula's friendships are something which we can only guess at, but what is clear is that she was very close to her sister-in-law Elizabeth Stafford. Elizabeth was the first-born child of the Duke of Buckingham, and was married to Thomas Howard, the third Duke of Norfolk, the uncle of Queens Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard. Elizabeth and Thomas's marriage was one of the most unhappy in the English nobility, with accusations of intense violence against the Duchess at the hands of her own husband. She would famously act against the rise of Anne Boleyn as Queen, despite Anne being her niece, which given the Pole family's politics, was likely a cause of bonding between Ursula and the Duchess. That a warm relationship existed between Ursula and her sister-in-law is evident from the bequests given after the Duchess of Norfolk died. In her will, she affectionately referred to Ursula as Sister Stafford, and left her all of her jewellery and apparel, as well as a French hood and a velvet-covered riding saddle. Ursula's family loyalties were once again challenged in 1537 when the Pilgrimage of Grace, the biggest domestic uprising in Henry VIII's reign, broke out. It would eventually lead to a period known as the Exeter Conspiracy, which all but decimated what remained of Ursula's one-time grand and large family. The Pilgrimage of Grace had begun in the Midlands, but soon spread across much of the north of England, and at its core was a relatively peaceful protest against the major changes that had taken place across the churches in England. Both Henry Pole and Geoffrey Pole were ordered to provide men from their own retinues to fight against the rebels, which it was hoped would counterbalance the activities that Reginald was planning to do in support of the pilgrimage. In the end, the rebellion was crushed before Reginald could even muster troops. However, despite the Pole family's assurances of their loyalty to the king, they did maintain regular contact throughout this time with Reginald. Now, they were close family, so that wasn't strange, but nonetheless, it did have the scope to open up the Pole family to further suspicion. It was eventually decided that assassins would be sent into Europe to kill Reginald, and when both Henry and Geoffrey Pole heard of this, they managed to get messages to their brother, which very likely saved his life. Geoffrey Pole was also becoming something of a liability by this point. He was constantly in debt, he had shown himself up at court, and he managed to get messages conveyed to Reginald expressing a wish to leave England. His words were taken overseas by a man in his employ called Hugh Holland. Upon returning to England, Holland was promptly arrested sometime in the summer of 1538. Following Hugh Holland's arrest, there were a number of high-ranking noblemen of Henry VIII's court, as well as servants of those noblemen who also found themselves locked up. Their supposed crimes have become known as, I mentioned a moment ago, the Exeter Conspiracy, which at its crux looked to overthrow the Tudors and place Henry Courtenay, Marquess of Exeter, 
on the throne. Now, whether it was ever a genuine conspiracy or merely gossip between people that was then inflamed by Cromwell is really difficult to say. What is beyond doubt is that the Marquis of Exeter was one of England's greatest nobles, and he had begun to make moves against Thomas Cromwell's policies. As a grandson of Edward IV, like Margaret Pole, Exeter did maintain a strong claim to the crown of England in his own right, and like the Duke of Buckingham before him, he hated low-born upstarts and held particular distaste for Thomas Cromwell. He longed, as did the Pole family, to see a change in policy back to the more conservative Catholic beliefs, as did his wife Gertrude, who was famously loose-tongued. On the 4th of November, Cromwell formally moved against Exeter, arresting him, Henry Pole, and Exeter's wife Gertrude. The very next day, Sir Edward Neville, another Tudor noble and a cousin of the Poles, was arrested for connections to the supposed Exeter conspiracy. By the 4th of December, the Marks of Exeter, Henry Pole, Geoffrey Pole, and Edward Neville had all been tried and convicted of treason. Just five days later, on the 9th of December, Exeter, Henry Pole, and Edward Neville would be dead on the executioner's scaffold. Geoffrey Pole managed to escape the Axeman, either down to his mental state, he had basically gone semi-insane in prison, or, more likely, because he spoke out against his own family to save his skin. Geoffrey soon attempted suicide inside the Tower of London, a clear sign that he felt very guilty about what he must have done. A few months later, Ursula's aged mother, Margaret, the Countess of Salisbury, also found herself attainted for high treason. She had been under house arrest at the Earl of Southampton's home in Hampshire for six months, before being transferred to the Tower of London sometime in the summer of 1539. Unlike her sons, for whom there was at least some evidence that they had said things that could be deemed as treasonous, Margaret Pole appears to have been judged merely by association. Hard evidence against her was lacking when it came to building a case, and so in all probability, Thomas Cromwell concocted evidence or had it twisted. When the act of attainder was read out against Margaret Pole, Cromwell produced a tunic which he had supposedly seized from amongst Margaret's goods. The details of the tunic were explained in a letter to another of the White Rose families, the Lyles, in which it was said, There was a coat found in the Countess of Salisbury's coffer, and by the one side of the coat there was the King's Grace's Arms of England, that is, the lions, without the fleur-de-lis, and about the whole arms was made the pansies for Pole, and the marigolds for the Lady Mary. And betwixt the marigold and the pansy was made a tree to rise in the midst, and on the tree a coat of purple hanging on a bough, in tokening of the coat of Christ, and on the other side of the coat all the passion of Christ. Pole intended to have married my Lady Mary, and betwixt them both should again rise the old doctrine of Christ. This was the intent that the coat was made, and it is openly known in the parliamentary house, as Master Sir John Speak showed me, and this, my Lady Marquess, my Lady Salisbury, with divers others, were attainted today by Act of Parliament. The discovery of the tunic was certainly convenient, and it was only discovered six months after Margaret's household was searched following her arrest. If the item was genuine, then surely it would have been spotted earlier, particularly as the royal arms had been woven into it. However, equally, Margaret's household was enormous. She had homes across practically the whole of England, and one tunic could be easily forgotten about. Margaret Pole's attainder was duly passed, and she was sentenced to death. We have no insight into what Ursula felt at this time, or what her actions were. 
She would of course have been aware of what was going on and must surely have been utterly heartbroken. Her eldest brother was executed. Her second eldest brother, Arthur, had died of a sweating sickness years earlier. Reginald was the most hated man in Europe as far as the king was concerned. Her youngest brother, Geoffrey, was suicidal and her elderly mother was now housed at the Tower of London awaiting execution. It must have felt like her entire world was turning upside down. The only consolation that she will have had was knowing that her own family, her husband and her many children were safe, for there was never any whisper or suggestion that Ursula and her husband were either questioned about the Exeter conspiracy, remaining far away in the Midlands, safely away from all of the drama. On the morning of the 27th of May 1541, after nearly two years of imprisonment, Margaret Pohl, as she was now styled, was informed that she would be executed within the hour. She told her captors that no crime had been put to her and refused to acknowledge that she was guilty of anything. Shortly after, she was led to a block on Tower Green to be beheaded. Margaret's execution has become infamous for its supposedly bungled nature. Now, whilst I see no evidence to support the story of Margaret running around being literally hacked apart, it is clear that the execution was nonetheless botched, requiring several strikes of the axe to sever her head. With the death of Margaret Pole, the figureheads of Ursula's family were now gone. Ursula would spend the rest of Henry VIII's reign living quietly, away from the court, bringing up her large brood of children. In January 1547, the king died, a bloated, angry tyrant. He left behind a depleted treasury, a shockingly poor legacy of failed attempts to recoup lands in France, and major infighting amongst his nobility. He also left behind just one son and two daughters, a son who at the age of nine became King Edward VI. It was under the new king, however, that Ursula Pole's life took a definite upturn, for in the first year of the boy king's reign, Henry Stafford petitioned Parliament for a restoration of his former wealth and properties, and in 1548 he was summoned to Parliament on the orders of the king from where he was made Baron Stafford, making Ursula Baroness Stafford. It had taken 26 years, but finally the Staffords had a title back. Throughout the reign of Edward VI, Ursula and her husband would spend a lot of their time at court, but never ascended beyond their barony title, and as such they were not regarded as particularly consequential to the day-to-day running of the country. There was no place on the small council for Henry Stafford, for example. Early on in the reign of Queen Mary I, Mary announced her intentions to marry Philip of Spain, a decision which proved massively unpopular and led to a period of unrest known as Wyatt's Rebellion. The rebellion sought to depose Mary and place her half-sister Elizabeth on the throne. Whilst Ursula and her husband, as seems to have been their wont, remained wisely away from the court and out of trouble, sadly a son of theirs would find himself at the centre of the rebellion. Queen Mary had treated the Staffords well, rewarding their quiet loyalty by returning Thornbury Castle to the couple. Thornbury was a spectacularly grand castle which was one of the key ancestral estates that had been taken by the crown following the Duke of Buckingham's attainder. Unfortunately, Thomas Stafford, Ursula and Henry's third son, placed a major strain on the relationship between Ursula and the Queen, for Thomas became involved in Wyatt's rebellion. In the wake of Wyatt's defeat, Thomas was imprisoned at the fleet before making an audacious escape from the prison and over into France. He was soon captured and subsequently beheaded for treason on the 28th of May, 
1557, it isn't difficult to assume that thereafter the relationship between Ursula and the Queen would have been frosty. Ursula's long absent brother Reginald returned safely to England during Mary's reign and would become her closest advisor. He died just hours after his royal mistress on the 17th of November 1558. All that now remained of the core Pole family was its quietest and least controversial figure, Ursula. She and her eldest daughter managed to become the Pole family's greatest survivors, the latter being a highly popular figure at the court of Elizabeth I. They were not completely alone, for another descendant of Margaret Poles also found great favour at the court of the last Tudor sovereign. Henry Hastings, 3rd Earl of Huntingdon, was a grandson of Henry Pole and was high in favour with the Queen. Ursula lived to witness the last Tudor monarch ascend to the throne, dying in 1570, 12 years into the reign of Elizabeth I. She was 66 years old. Ursula's eldest daughter, Dorothy, was a great favourite of Queen Elizabeth, serving as mistress of the robes. She also became loosely related by marriage to the Queen, for Dorothy's husband was none other than Sir William Stafford, the widower of Mary Boleyn, the sister of Anne Boleyn, the Queen, Ursula's mother, so detested. Were she alive to see it, Margaret Pole would have held great displeasure at her granddaughter Dorothy's religion, for she and her family adhered so firmly to the new Protestant faith that during the reign of Queen Mary they actually fled England, living in exile in Geneva before returning to England once Elizabeth had safely come to the throne. Dorothy reached a great age for the time. She died at the age of 78 in September 1604. She's buried in great splendour at St Margaret's Church, Westminster Abbey. The inscription of her tomb reads, Here lieth the Lady Dorothy Stafford, wife and widow to Sir William Stafford, knight, daughter to Henry Lord Stafford, the only son of Edward, the last Duke of Buckingham, her mother, Ursula, daughter to the Countess of Salisbury, the only daughter to George, Duke of Clarence, brother to King Edward IV. She continued a true widow from the age of 27 till her death. She served Queen Elizabeth 40 years, lying in the bedchamber, esteemed of her, loved of all, doing good, all she could, to everybody, never hurt any, a continual remembrancer of the suits of the poor. As she lived a religious life, in great reputation of honour and virtue in the world, so she ended in continual fervent meditation and hearty prayers to God, at which instant, as all her life, so after her death, she gave liberally to the poor and died, aged 78, the 22nd of September, 1604, in whose remembrance Sir Edward Stafford, her son, hath caused this memorial of her to be in the same form and place as she herself long since required him. Now, although her grandmother would have struggled to accept Dorothy's Protestantism and the fact that she served not Mary I, but Elizabeth I, Margaret Pole would surely have approved of and taken great pride in the sentiments seen in this inscription. It shows that her daughter Ursula's eldest daughter Dorothy was the perfect representation of what it meant to be a Pole, what it meant to descend from the great house of Plantagenet. Despite Margaret Pole having four sons and countless grandsons, the Pole name, like the family themselves, died out. It is the delicious irony, however, that it was Margaret's often overlooked daughter's line that emerged the individual with the scope and the authority to commemorate his hugely important forebears.
And so that brings me to the end of this week's episode of the Tudor Chess Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. With the news now out that Wolf Hall Season 2 is in production, I think it's only prudent to dive into the life of its main character, Henry VIII's controversial Chief Minister, Thomas Cromwell. Look out for that next Thursday. And in the meantime, to access all my bonus episodes, head to my Patreon account or sign up via Apple Podcasts. Thank you again and speak soon.